Corinthians, and last week I alluded to this just a little bit. Uh, two last week, whenever I get we we approached into chapter 15, I gave you an outline that would last for several weeks. And so, if you happen to remember that outline, we're just going. We're actually just looking at one little sub point tonight that is being expanded into uh, what we what we'll just talk about just for tonight, and that is uh, Christ the first fruits. When we looked at the, I guess we talked two. We've been talking two weeks about First Corinthians 15. Paul is talking about the gospel. He's talking about the gospel uh, and how that uh, relates to the big theme of this chapter, and it's the resurrection. And so Paul is uh, his kind of in a way broken it up into uh, the resurrection of Jesus. We talk about that at the beginning of the uh, of the uh, chapter and just a few verses there. What is the gospel? The gospel is the death. The burial and the resurrection of Christ; those are the those are the three things that are confirmed by the scriptures, uh, uh, prophesied by the scriptures, and then also fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Then Paul continues to add the human uh, confirmation, if you will, though the Bible needs none, but it's nice to have it uh, that uh, he was seen. He was he was literally seen because um, think about. I mean, we could still trust God if if Jesus never reappeared uh, after he left Earth. But it sure does help sometimes for us. Is just like the Jews, they require a sign. And what greater sign than to see the one who you watched die on the cross, whom you buried, and whom you, uh, now, stand, who now stands before you. And so uh, just as literally as he lived and literally as he died, he literally resurrected. And so Paul spends some time talking about that. Then, as we looked at in the last week, in verse number 12 and on, he begins to talk about the resurrection of the dead. And it's and I think mistakenly last week I mentioned I said it was the resurrection of the body. We're going to kind of talk about the resurrection of the body uh, in in the next section. Uh, but uh, last week it was kind of the resurrection of the dead. And uh, if if there is no resurrection, if if a dead person can't resurrect, if that's physically, humanly impossible, supernaturally impossible, then that means a lot of things. And we talked about those, but mostly Jesus can't. Jesus isn't alive, and that makes everything worthless. And so if you remember that outline there, we had a worth, I think it said a worthless, I don't have it in front of me, but we had a worthless religion and a worthless something else. And then it said Christ the first fruits. Okay, so that's what we're getting to uh, last, uh, from last week. So we pick it up in verse number 20, and we're going to make our way through verse 28 tonight. As Paul begins in verse 20, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Really, that phrase the first fruits of them that slept. He repeats it two verses later, verse 23. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterward, they they that are Christ at his coming. That's what we're looking at tonight, this idea. What does Paul mean by saying that Christ is the first fruits? Certainly, he's not the first person to have resurrected. Jesus himself resurrected people. I think immediately of Lazarus. I think of uh, in the Old Testament. Who was the prophet? That uh, Was it Elijah? Or Elisha, one of the two, when they buried him and they put his body in the tomb and, and there was old bones from other skeletons in there and they became alive and they came out. And there was other resurrections. Uh, Jesus uh, several times uh, resurrected people. But what? so what makes Christ the first fruits? Well, all those people that were all resurrected died again. So they're still, they're still dead. But Jesus resurrected and still lives. He lives forevermore. And so... Uh, Christ is the first fruits, and then we can also go back to since God does not live in time, 
he knew man would sin. He knew he would come. The gospel was already done. Before man appeared on the scene and committed the first sin, God had already made a way, and in God's mind, salvation had already been completed. He was already going to come. Uh, he was already going to, to happen. And so it was all written. Salvation wasn't an afterthought. Like, oh man, sin, now what do I got to do? He knew, I'm going to make a man. I'm going to give him a free will. He's going to make the wrong choices, and he's going to destine himself to hell, and I'm going to save him. All done. And then he said, let there be light. It's a very interesting uh, thing if we talk about it. But, but uh, Paul spent some time talking to us about this idea of the first fruits. And we're going to go in a couple of different places uh, to, help under, uh, to help us understand what he's talking about and it's actually a, a, a very uh, first first thought I thought oh, kind of a complicated uh, topic but really it became simpler as the more I looked at it and probably we could go a lot deeper with it but you'd need someone smarter than me to do that for you so uh, just tonight we'll keep it nice and simple so he says in verse number 20 that Christ is now, uh, now is Christ risen from the dead become the first fruits of them that slept for since by man came death that's Adam by man came also the resurrection of the dead. That's Jesus. So several times in chapter 15, we see Jesus being referred to as some sort of an Adam. Okay, uh, so there's he, some, uh, one place he calls him the second Adam. And another place it calls him the last Adam. There was the first Adam by whom uh, death comes. And then there's the next Adam by whom life comes. They were all the beginning of a, Adam was the beginning of a new race. Jesus, the beginning of of the new race, if you will, of Christians. And so uh, we see several times uh, that he's, he's, uh, he's referred to in that sense. There's a lot of parallels drawn between Adam, the first man, and Christ uh, in, in uh, the New Testament. And so we see here that uh, verse 20, Christ is risen indeed. The claim is true. Uh, he spent several verses just a few minutes ago, uh, or, I'm sorry, a few verses ago, talking about the fact that it has to be true because if it isn't, all of these things are not true. What about all those 500 plus people that saw him? Uh, we know that he died. He was dead for three days. I, I think that something, at least for one reason, why he was in the ground for three days, to prove that he didn't just faint, to prove that he wasn't holding his breath. You know, it wasn't like a, a magic trick. It wasn't, uh, you know, one of those Harry Houdini, and then we could go behind the scenes and watch what really happened at Calvary. And Jesus, you know, they were using fake nails, and he was just holding his breath, and he had ketchup packets and all that no he really died and he really shed his blood and he was dead and for three days a confirmation he's not going anywhere and even the romans uh as they thought that they were going to uh make his claims of resurrection uh invalid helped to solidify the fact he's in there and he's not coming out in fact we've got a guard outside the door we rolled a stone in front of the door nothing's coming in and one man's coming out. Uh, but, and, and, and when the roll, stone is rolled away and the, the guards follow the dead man, and I believe we looked at it last night, or at least I alluded to it last week, that, uh, that when the resurrection did occur, the guards came back into the city and told the, the, the temple guards or the temple leaders what happened. And they said, well, we've got to cover our tracks here. And so let's just say that his disciples stole his body away. Let's think about that. Some fishermen snuck up on uh, what our equivalent as Navy SEALs and overpowered them, and then rolled this giant stone away and, and stole the body, uh, a dead body that had been in the ground for three days. Why would you do that? How could you do that? And I don't know of anybody that would sign up if, if they were in this room. Hey, we need to go, and we need to uh, break into Fort Knox, and uh, we just need a few of us. Maybe Can I get a show of hands? Anybody volunteering 
and no thanks. Uh, I'll, I'll stay back and pray for y'all and uh, start collecting bail money or whatever is going to be needed. Uh, that's, that's a ridiculous claim, but it went. And so throughout Jerusalem, uh, and probably even into the time when Paul is writing this, and from Jerusalem and emanating throughout all the world is these, uh, these two messages. Remember, try the spirits because one's false and one's not. Jesus resurrected from the dead. Jesus' disciples stole his body away so that he could, you know, they could say he's... But then, even if you believe that message, what do you do when Jesus is standing and you're one of the 500 going, oh, wow, he's alive. Now, I don't know how... I mean, I could understand. I could kind of figure out how the disciples stole his body, but I have no idea how they resurrected him. What did they do? I mean, what, what medical procedures did they do to bring this man back to life? And then uh, to witness all of the miracles uh, following just an incredible, uh, an, a very supernatural event. And so Paul is just very, very basic here. Christ definitely has to be risen. We know that he is risen, which means that there is a resurrection of the dead, and that makes Christ the first fruits of the dead. Now, he's, the, the word or the phrase, Christ the first fruits, alludes to one of their feasts. How many of you have read the book uh, by Kevin Howard, The Feasts of the Lord? I, I've talked to a few of you and done before, just one or two people. Okay, so good. So I'm, I'm throwing out some new information. It's not like, oh, I already heard that and you misquoted it. So it's a great book. Dan Woods uh, recommended it to me uh, earlier in, in this year, and I read it. It was an incredible book. But there are about seven big feasts that the Jews celebrated uh, throughout the year, and they were specifically uh, laid out by God, and they all point to Jesus. It's very, very interesting. In Leviticus 23, and verse number 9 is where we see God spelling out the, the idea of the fir- Feast of the First Fruits. We have some time, so let's just look there very quickly. Leviticus 23, and verse number 9. The big event, the first big uh, feast, would have been the Passover. And the Jews would have looked at it as them uh, remembering their coming out of Egypt. But it actually has more to do with Jesus than Egypt. It's, it's all about the gospel. In fact, the first three feasts are the gospel. We'll see that uh, in, in the last two as we get going. But in Leviticus 23, in verse number 9... He, speak, he begins about the first fruits. He says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye be come into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted before you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Ye shall offer that day when you wave the sheaf, and, and he lay him without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord. We won't read much more uh, than that, but just to get an idea, in a nutshell, the first fruits feast. That's a. I'm, I'm gonna. I know I'm gonna stumble over that every time I say it tonight. And I've seen the notes like ten times, so I'm gonna have a tough time. I just wrote FF on all my notes, but I know I have to say it now. But uh, the the first first the first fruits feast would happen right after the Sabbath. It was supposed to happen the day. Uh, I think the day right after the Sabbath. They were supposed to take the first sheaf of the harvest, so bundling it all up uh, of the barley harvest. And they would bring that to the priest. The priest would take that sheaf and he would wave it before God. And then uh, God would accept the offering. And then the rest of the feast would be uh, marked by animal sacrifices. And another interesting thing, we didn't get down that far, but in verse 14, they were not allowed to eat any bread or grain until this happened, until this took place. And so uh, they weren't allowed to enjoy any of that harvest, no cereal, no bread, no anything until 
the feast of first fruits is, is, is that whole uh, offering has been has been done. I was reading in that book. Uh, he talks about how they how they uh, they kind of uh, they tried to streamline it just as we do as people. And so what they would do is they would have this one little section of a field and and the priests would go out and they would they would go through and they would they would go through this ritual and they would the people would follow them and they'd ask these questions is it after the sabbath and is this the first cut and is this the right sickle and they would do it three times and then they'd cut it and then they'd carry it back into town as a big procession it was a big big day well the feast of the first fruits was the start of the countdown to the next feast which is called the feast of weeks and the feast of weeks in the bible is prophetic of the Holy Spirit coming and indwelling the believer. We can't get into that tonight. I think one of these one of these times we'll go through and look at each of these feasts and how they relate to us because it's more than just a, a holiday uh, where you take off work and have some food, uh, although uh, just about all of their holidays are marked by some incredible eating, and uh, I, I would like to uh, take part in that at least. But the, the Feast of, of the Weeks is a, is a prophetic... Uh, reenactment of what would soon come, the Holy Spirit coming. It took place 50 days or seven weeks after the Feast of First Fruits. Uh, very, it's very interesting in how in the New Testament, uh, when the Holy Spirit came in the upper room, was 50 days uh, from a very specific day. And so um, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll maybe touch on that just a little bit. But since the Feast of, uh, just as the Feast of Weeks is prophetic of the Holy Spirit's coming, the Feast of First Fruits is prophetic of Jesus' resurrection. There was another one before that called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where they would eat bread with no leaven in it, because it would, and it would picture Jesus' burial, and would, but, it, but his body would see no corruption. Then we have the Passover, and that's obviously uh, the crucifixion of Christ. In the book, let me read a couple of quotes that uh, help us to understand uh, what we're saying. Kevin Howard, the, the author there, he says, The Feast of First Fruits was seen as the beginning of the grain harvest in Israel, but even more importantly, it marked the countdown to the Feast of Weeks. He goes on, The first fruits of barley harvest were representative of the barley harvest as a whole and served as a pledge or guarantee that the remainder of the harvest would be realized in the days that followed. In other words, by giving God, you know, as Proverbs tells us, that if we honor the Lord with our substance, uh, and, and your barns will be first with plenty, all of a sudden my mind went blank on how the rest of that verse goes. But uh, when we honor God with the first much like the tithe, uh, we, God is saying, I will take care of you the re- with the rest of that 90%. And so what they were doing is by saying, God, you have blessed this abundant harvest. We give back to you the first fruits. And that is in uh, almost as a part, our, our carrying out of our side, your side is to bless us with enough for the, re- for the rest of what we need. So we're not giving you all we have, and now we have to suffer through. God says, you give me first, and I will make sure you have enough. And so by, doing, by giving the, uh, the, the first fruits, I'll just read it again because he said it better than I can say it. They, they were representative as, of the barley harvest as a whole, but they also served as a pledge or guarantee that the remainder of the harvest would be realized in the days that follow. Now the resurrection of Jesus... I'm still quoting uh, Kevin Howard here. The, the resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee in the beginning of the final harvest or the resurrection of all mankind. So tonight, we're talking about the resurrection, but we could also substitute the word in harvest there. We're going to look at a couple of places where Jesus talks about this. Um, the feast of first fruits 
signified the time of grain harvest each year. Christ, being the first fruits, signifies a spiritual harvest or resurrection that Paul spells out in verse 23 and 24. So I hopefully kept the spot there in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's go back to verse 23 and look at that uh, briefly. Verse 23, Paul says, uh, well, let me back up to verse uh, uh, 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. And then he gives us the order. Christ the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. Then come at the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Stop there just for a moment. So the this harvest or resurrection that is referred to uh, by the feasts, but also uh, what he's talking about here, this this uh, by using this idea of the first fruits, he's alluding to a harvest. Jesus talked about this actually several times. I won't ask you to turn to this one, but in Daniel, Daniel talked about this, and and we'll see it the same idea brought out in what Jesus said that there would be a resurrection of the dead, some to life, some to destruction, some to eternal life, some to damnation. And speaking of one day when all bodies that are dead will be resurrected and then be either uh, brought into heaven or sent to hell. Jesus talked about this several times. I want to take you to a couple of those places tonight in the time that we have. John chapter 5, please. And let's go there. John 5, 29. We're going to use our Bibles uh, quickly tonight uh, so that we don't go over our normal time, but uh, we'll, we'll do as much as we can here. John chapter 5 and verse 25. Jesus is speaking here, and he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given up to the Son of so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this. So don't be a, a, a surprised by this. For the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. When I first read verse 25, I thought he was talking about Christians. But when you get down to verse 29, or verse 28, all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. And notice, and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So here we're seeing all bodies, you know, when we lay old Joe Blow down in the grave, doesn't matter if he's saved or not, one day he will resurrect. But it won't be good if he wasn't saved. It will be great if he was. His body and soul will be reunited. But he will also, there's, if he's, if without salvation, he's uh, sent to hell. Uh, let me show you another place. Matthew 13, if you will. Matthew 13 and verse 37. We're in John, so we'll just back up a few verses. to Matthew chapter 13 and verse 37. This is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Uh, in verses 24 through 30, Jesus actually gave the parable of the farmer went out, he sowed wheat in his field, his enemy came at night, and he sowed tares in the field. Well, you couldn't tell after a while. Those of you who have uh, raised, uh, you know, raised crops and things, you, you can't see the weeds right away until you see, you, know, you see them sprout up. And then all of a sudden now, look at that. Oh, okay, we've got some, we've got some things among uh, among the wheat, we got some bad among the good, and so the the servants come to the to the to the farmer and they say, "Your enemy came in and he sowed tares among the wheats. What do we do? Should we pluck up now? Uh, pluck up the tear now?" And he said, "No, because if you do, you might pluck up some of the wheat with it." And each wheat was important to him. Think about that. If I was gonna, you know, 
pull out all the tares now and maybe only lose one or two wheat stalks, what's the big deal? But when we're talking about we are the wheat, Jesus said, I am not willing to lose one wheat stalk. Farmers, I will wait until the very end. We'll harvest it all together and then we'll sort it out once it's all harvested. So then, later on, he told a couple of parables. In fact, he told about four or five parables in this chapter. But we get down to verse 37, and his disciples are like, Jesus, you've got to go back and you've got to explain this to us. Verse 30, uh, 30, 36, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. Verse 37, He answered and said to them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. Good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. Notice there's that word harvest. And the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and, shall, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend unto them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a fire, furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. So in this passage we see a parable of wheat and tares, and all are harvested, or all are resurrected, and then after the harvest, then there's a sifting. Let me take you to one more place. We're in Matthew 13, so just go a couple of chapters to Matthew 25. And yet, yet another parable about this harvest, but this time with sheep and goats. Matthew 25 and verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as the shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I'm going to skip down to verse 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, this would be the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then uh, skip down a little bit more unto verse uh, 46. And these, the same ones on the left, the goats, these shall go away into life, I'm sorry, into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. So all of that, all of those stories to just confirm the fact that all bodies, all dead will be resurrected one day. But that's not the end. That's not a good, that's not the hope of the resurrection. Because you might be resurrected and then go to hell. And that's if you die without Christ now. And so we go back to 1 Corinthians 15 and... I may not have you turn anywhere else. I may just go to a couple of places, so you might be safe to uh, take your bookmark out or whatever. But don't let your guard down, because I might, I might lie to you. 1 Corinthians 15, and we pick it up in verse 23, this order again. Christ, the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ that is coming. I'm reading in verse 23 and now 24. Then come at the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. So we have this order here. Number one is Christ. That would be Easter, when Jesus resurrected from the dead. Uh, you can look in Revelation 1.5 and see another verse about that. Then the second, he says, afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. That would be the dead in Christ, those who belong to him. First Thessalonians 4.16 talks about that. Uh, we read that a lot at funerals, but he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Paul says to those, uh, concerning those who are asleep uh, in the moment of twinkling of an eye and the dead in Christ, uh, he says that uh, the, the trumps will sound, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up. And that's referring to the rapture. One of these days, Jesus is coming back and he's going to uh, not put his feet on this earth, but he's definitely going to come back and he's going to call us up. And those who are his will rise to meet him. And he says, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. 
It's a comforting thought to know that one day I'm going to be with Jesus, and the next time I'm with Jesus, the first time I'm with Jesus, I will never have to worry about anything else. It's all taken care of. Uh, think about that as you remember as a kid and you just knew dad was going to take care of everything. You remember going to sleep in the car on a long road trip in the back seat? If dad was a good driver, you could go to sleep and know that you're going to be okay. Uh, I remember when I started driving, my mom didn't relax until, you know, and she kind of relaxes now, but, you know, she was one, she's like, Tim, you're doing 26. It's a 25. Slow down. Mom, you can't even see at this angle what the, what the thing is, but, you know, she would, she would, you know, side backseat driver, whatever it is. But as a child, you could sit back there, and I have, I have a very vivid memory. We had gone to Seattle. We were at a special church uh, event, and uh, it was very late, and I remember my dad was driving home. I was sitting in the back seat. It was late, and I just, I was able to just go to sleep, and I thought, you know what? Um, Dad's going to get me home. I don't have to worry about anything. I don't have to try to figure out where the next turn is. Dad's going to pay attention to the exits. I can go to sleep and rest in the fact that Dad is going to take care of everything. And that's basically, that's what, what Paul is telling the, the, the people there. He's saying, you know, Jesus is going to come. Dad's going to come and take us home. And uh, we're going to be safe. And all is going to be well. And then Paul, uh, Paul refers to this third, third uh, group, if you will, in the order. Not specifically the people, but in the end. He says, then comes the end. This would be the unsaved dead. This would be the resurrection of the rest of the dead for final judgment. Matthew 25. We, didn't, we did read that one the parable of the sheep and the goats. So that would be the order. Christ, he's already done that. We're waiting. We're somewhere right between one and two right now, waiting on that trumpet sound and waiting to uh, rise to meet him in the air. He goes on in verse 25. He says, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things that uh, shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. If you're not paying attention, you're just like, what? What, what did he just say there? And so we back up, and I had to read this about five times to make sure I understood what he was saying. So in my Bible, I had to make some arrows. I was drawing arrows and writing the he, because he uses a lot of he's, and uh, definitely the old language, even in English, is, it can be confusing. He, Jesus must reign. He says, then comes the end, verse 24, uh, when he shall deliver it up the kingdom of God, so that he is Jesus Christ, delivers the kingdom up to the Father, when he, Jesus, shall have put down all rule, all authority, and power. That's, that's, the, that's the, uh, the, what we call the, the millennial reign of Christ. He'll reign on this earth. He will rule and reign. He will be just. It will be perfect, uh, perfect rule. And so then it says, for he must reign, verse 25, Till he hath put all enemies under his feet. That's prophetic. Even that right there, uh, that's been mentioned several times throughout the Old Testament uh, about this this idea of putting his enemies under his feet. Namely, think about in the Garden of Eden when uh, when he talked to Satan. He said, "You'll bruise his heel, uh, but you'll but he'll bruise your head." Uh, putting enemies under his feet. That last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And so, at Christ's return, we see that he will reign. Verse twenty-five. He will destroy his enemies. And he will deliver the kingdom to his father. Now, and it says that um, it says, uh, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith, all things are put under him, Jesus, it is manifest, or it's I'm paraphrasing here, but it's obvious that he, the Father, is accepted, who put all things under him. So the Father put all things under Jesus' feet. He didn't put himself under Jesus. Okay, so that's what it, that's what it's saying there. And it says, uh, uh, verse. Uh, 
28, And when all things are subdued unto him, the Son, then shall the Son also be subject unto him that put all things under him. That would be God. Notice that God may be all in all. So verse 25, Jesus must reign until all his enemies are under his feet uh, or under his authority. This is a quote. If you want to write it down, you can look at it later. From Psalm chapter 8 and, and verse 6, and also the 110th Psalm, he quotes from those things. Uh, let me give you two other verses if you'd like to look at them later on, or two passages. First of one is Philippians 3.19, and that basically is another uh, passage in the New Testament that teaches that all are going to be resurrected, some to life and some to destruction. And the second passage to share is 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10, and that basically says that those who do not obey the gospel will be punished with everlasting destruction. And so uh, there, there is going to be a resurrection. There is going to be a final uh, a calling, if you will, for those people, for all people. But then we get to verse number 26, and he says that the last enemy that, that is destroyed is death. We, we are familiar with verse 58 when he talks about, O death, uh, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Uh, the sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. Uh, but thanks be to God who gives the victory. And so, uh, he, but he speaks of that first in this verse. Also, Isaiah 25, 8 talks about that prophetic, that he destroys death, that'll be the last thing, which means no one else will die after that point. Uh, the sheep and the goats have been, have been uh, scattered, and that means that those in hell don't die. Death is non-existent. It's not a thing anymore. Those in heaven don't die. Death is a separation. Though the separation has already happened. You're either separated unto God or separated from God. And so now if you're with God, you're home free. I mean, you're, you're done. You're, you're, you're there. And it gets a whole lot easier to have a relationship with God when you're living in a perfect body and doing, uh, doing the Father's will uh, without dealing with a body of sin. And uh, these, so these verses describe what happens when Jesus delivers the kingdom to His Father. And then I like this last little phrase here in verse 28, uh, uh, that God may be all in all. So uh, God the Father gave Jesus the Son all things into His subjection. Jesus rules and reigns and begins to uh, uh, put all enemies under His feet. The last one He finally conquers is death. Death is no more. And then He takes the kingdom and He delivers it back to His Father. He gives the Father uh, 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 the kingdom uh, in, a, in the rightful thing. At this time, God will truly be the only authority. This phrase here expresses the supremacy of God in all things. Think about it right now. We understand that God is the only authority, but really, uh, dealing in a sinful body, God is not the only thing that we obey. We obey our appetites. We obey other voices that are in the world that we choose to listen to. We obey ourselves sometimes. But at that time, there will be no other authority. There will be no other power. There will be Jesus, and we will obey Him. And it will be, it will be a perfect, uh, perfect place. Sin is defeated, Satan has lost, and death is no more. I struggled uh, with this idea of a New Testament. I'm sorry, I, don't, I, I was reading something extra on my notes here. I struggled with this idea of takeaways. I, I, I want to sit back when I get done and say, okay, well, is it enough just to talk about this is what the Bible says? Uh, but what, what does that mean? What does that mean to me? What, I don't want to just get smart about the Bible. I don't want to just know more about the Bible verses and know what they mean. I want to do something with it. Why, why, if it's so important that God decided to put it in the Bible for all eternity so that in 2016, 
I could read it and, and learn from it, what do I gather from it? And so uh, I had to look at this a couple of times, and, and uh, so I just, I'm going to share one or two of these with you. To the Christian, the resurrection of Christ means a hope of eternal life. This passage here, the first fruits, that guarantee, just as the feast of first fruits was a guarantee, God, I'm giving you the first because I'm trusting that you promised that there will be the rest. Jesus guaranteed my one day being with him by resurrecting himself. If he didn't fulfill his end of the bargain, where would I be? Well, I know I'm supposed to resurrect, but not even God resurrected. So how am I going to be with him when I die? But the very fact that he became, he did it first. He jumped out the door first, and he says, that's a guarantee that one day I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resurrect you too, and I'm going to bring you with me. Uh, and it really did happen. It really did happen that Jesus resurrected, and it really will happen. We really will resurrect one day and be with God. It's a very hard fact for us to really wrap our brains around because has anybody in here ever died before? You know, I mean, we haven't. You know, uh, you know, and I don't want to die. And anybody, you know, I, I'm, I know I'm going to, and I'm be with heaven. I'm gonna be in heaven with Jesus, but I don't want to be the next one. I don't want to be the next guy. I'm not volunteering. There's no sign up sheet, and I'm not definitely putting my name on there. But at the same time, it's going to be good. I just want it to be painless. I just want it to be uh, quick and, and and easy. What do they say? Like Grandpa Joe did, not like the rest of the people screaming in the car, as uh, he. But uh, I want to die in my sleep like Grandpa Joe, not like the people in the backseat. But uh, then the other thing was here that the Feast of the Old Testament, as we get into it, and as you, if you've ever studied them out, it was just another really awesome understanding how the entire Bible, and I, and I kind of alluded this this morning, the entire Bible points to one thing. It points to Jesus. This whole book, it's not just about the Old Testament stories and then the New Testament, it's about Jesus, the Gospels, and then those writers who wrote about him. The entire thing from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22, it's all about Christ. And in this instance, all of the feasts that for thousands of years, Jewish uh, uh, zealots, if you will, or or those uh, that would follow that Orthodox religion, had celebrated those feasts. And it was all pointing to the Messiah is going to come. He's going to be the perfect Passover lamb. Jesus entered Jerusalem at the time of Passover, presented himself just as the same time that the, the perfect lamb would have been presented at that year of Passover. There was the Feast of Unleavened Bread that they would have celebrated shortly after to picture that three days Jesus would be in the tomb but his body would see no corruption. That was prophesied. Then there was the Feast of first fruits, picturing that Jesus would resurrect from the dead and he would be harvested from the dead first, uh, guaranteeing that others would come. The Feast of Weeks, Jesus would leave, but he would send his spirit. Would come from the Father, as we looked at this morning, He would speak of Jesus. He would dwell within us. He would remind us of truth. He would guide us in truth. And all of these things, uh, they all point. They all point to Jesus. And as we read them now, it all points back to Jesus. And it all is relevant. It, it, it's relevant for us to study the Old Testament because it points to Jesus. It's relevant for us to study the New Testament because it points us to Christ. As we uh, observe communion, it, we're pointing ourselves to Christ. And it's so important as, as followers of Jesus that we constantly reposition ourselves back on Christ. Because as the world gets us and drags us here and there and distracts us and does this thing, we kind of find ourselves off course a little bit. And it's important that we do it. You remember, the last illustration will be done. You remember when you were learning how to drive? When you were real little, 
and you sat down in the in the driver's seat and hopefully the car wasn't running. But you know, what did you do? And you sat there and you go, wham, 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 you're doing this because this is how you drive, right? But that's not really how you drive. How do you drive? Well, if you're really cool, you know, up here. If you're in driver's ed, it's 10 and 2. Uh, if you're lazy, you just got two fingers on the steering wheel. But uh, you don't do this. That's really bad, right? Especially in the winter, right? You don't wait until the car gets to this edge before you correct and go back over here, and then you go back over here. You do as much as you can to keep it in a straight line, and that means you just make little corrections. So I'm driving, and I just kind of keep it going right there. And the best drivers keep you in a straight line. The worst drivers make you car sick because they're doing this all over the road, and then they get pulled over, and then they have to walk a line, and all these things because they haven't learned how to draw a line. Well, in Christianity, that's my, that's my goal. It's to not keep doing this and veering off from, and then, and then trying to get back and then hitting the mark, but veering off again and then trying to, and, and no, I'm just, I'm doing as much as I can to make the little corrections so that if you were to look at my life, it would look a whole lot more like a straight line than a Z doing this, a zigzag back and forth. That's the importance of focusing on Christ and focusing on Jesus. That's why it's important. We're going to get into the next thing. Paul uses his reasoning uh, to ask them some really, some really dumb practices and some questions that uh, are really uh, kind of foolish when you when you say them out loud and paul is going to use some reasoning to do that we'll, we'll get into it next time we're, we're here let's pray